Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Two quick notes before we dive into today's podcast. First, there's an update to last week's episode with Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss. During the show, they said that no other stablecoins have named their banking partners. At the time, I did mention that at least Tether had named some of its banking partners, but I also wanted to note that Circle's USD coin has several banking partners, including Silvergate Bank and US Bank Corp Asset Management, and True USD has named its trust companies and their correspondent banks. I've appended an update to last week's episode and show notes as well. Second, I've launched a weekly newsletter. If you aren't getting it yet, be sure to go to unchainedpodcast.com, where you can sign up for the newsletter at the top of the homepage. Again, the website is unchainedpodcast.com. That's all my news. Now on to today's show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. <laughs> Sorry, wait, wait, I just start over again. Okay. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you've been enjoying Unchained, pop an iTunes to give us a top reading. <laughs> 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 no, don't do that. That's so cruel. Um, if you've been enjoying Unchained, pop in the iTunes to give us a top rating review that helps other listeners find the show, which would be great because we endured the worst sound check you could ever possibly imagine to bring you this episode. Do you have an idea for a blockchain app, but are worried about the time and cost it will take to develop? The folks at Azure have you covered. The new Azure Blockchain Dev Kit is a free download that gives you the tools needed to get your first app running in less than 30 minutes. Learn more at aka.ms slash unchained or by following them on Twitter at MSFT blockchain. Within months, cryptocurrency anti-money laundering regulations go global. Are you ready? Avoid stiff penalties or blacklisting by deploying effective anti-money laundering tools for exchanges and crypto businesses, the same tools used by regulators. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. Considering using digital securities as a way to grow in 2019? Tokensoft's trusted platform provides the security and compliance tools to leverage blockchain technology and enter new markets with confidence. Visit us at tokensoft.io or on Twitter at Tokensoft Inc. My guest today is Rune Christensen of MakerDAO. Welcome, Rune. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for enjoying that crazy sound check. Um, all right. So you were on the podcast before talking about stablecoins generally. And at that yes. time, we did describe MakerDAO in that episode. But it's a pretty complex system. So I felt like there was plenty more we could discuss. So much so, in fact, that I actually have to warn listeners that the MakerDAO system has a lot of nuances and a lot of special terminology. So you may have to do a lot of rewinding. It honestly preparing for this reminded me a little bit of the DYDX episode where I was having to listen to my pre-interview with Antonio on 0.6 speed. Anyway, so Rune, for listeners who didn't hear that episode, why don't you give us a short overview of what MakerDAO is and how it works? Yeah, so 
at the very basic, uh, MakerDAO is a decentralized platform on Ethereum that creates a stable coin called DAI. And being a stable coin means that one DAI is worth one dollar. And this is really useful, right? And sort of a, a new frontier in crypto because once you have stability and once you have money and, and crypto that just has value that you're used to, you can actually start using it for real stuff and more than just speculation. And there's a second token also in the MakerDAO system. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, so in addition to DAI, the stable token, there's also MKR, which is like the governance token and sort of a, a speculative token that gives holders of it exposure to the, the system as a whole. And uh, yeah, I mean, this, and this really gets into this, what you were talking about, right? There's a lot of, um, there's a very advanced system sort of under the hood that powers the stability of, of DAI. Um, and the MKR token is basically uh, like the ownership and the control over this this uh, underlying system. And so in the previous episode where we described stablecoins generally, we talked about how there were multiple different models to use where you, you know, that you could use to create a coin that had a stable value. So what is the model that MakerDAO uses? Yeah, so... There's generally considered to be three types of stablecoins, and um, and Maker and Dive falls in the crypto collateralized uh, model. So what that means is the stability of Dive comes from the fact that there is collateral, so there are valuable assets that are sitting in smart contracts on the Ethereum blockchain and are essentially available to buy back Dive, and in that way prop up the price and keep the keep it stable at one dollar. All right, great. Yeah. And just so people know, right now, it's st- it started with what's called single collateral die, which is backed by Ether, but you're going to be moving to a multi collateral die system, which is going to be backed by many different types of assets. Some of it, I mean, they all have to be crypto in form, but some of them could even be real world assets, such as like crypto versions of real estate or gold or something like that. Yeah. And even other types of stablecoins as well. Oh, right, right, right. Which I think I asked you about before. Um, but anyway, okay, so let's now dive into the details of how all this works. And we're going to just walk through the simplest scenario with DAI, which is that we have a single collateral DAI and a user decides to create this single collateral DAI for themselves. And and so so... Listeners should know that what can happen is that if you, if the value of the collateral that you put up falls below a certain minimum threshold, then your uh, die and, and the the collateral that you put up will be liquidated. Your position will be liquidated. Um, however, let's just walk through the simplest scenario in which somebody creates die for themselves, but their uh, their position is never liquidated. How how do they create the die, and then how do they get their collateral back? Yeah. So, and I, whenever I talk about this, I really like to compare it to a mortgage and like taking out a loan where using your house as the collateral from the bank, right? Because this is actually something a lot of people do. And so basically the first part of the interaction is putting the collateral into the system, right? So this is kind of equivalent to going to the bank and um, saying, here's my house and here's the, here's the, the claim on my house. And then you like, then this system, you know, gives you basically an amount that you can borrow based on the value of your collateral and then gives you the, sends you the die and gives you the money basically. And 
over time, so now, so basically now you have the you have the die, you have the the stable coin that you borrowed that you can then go and spend on something, and you also have what's called the CDP, the collateralized debt position, and this is effectively uh, this is something like you know, own like when you own your house, but the bank has a lien on it, right? So you own your collateral, but the collateral is locked behind debt, and you only can you can only get you can only retrieve the collateral out of the system again by paying back the debt. And uh, let's say if you wait a year before you you pay back your debt because you wanted to spend your money and then after a year maybe the price of ethereum has gone up and you want to to um like lock in some of those profits then you also have to pay a stability fee. So this is basically the interest rate you have to pay to the bank as well, right? This, this is a similar logic. So you you pay down the debt and then you pay the 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 stability fee which right now has to be paid with the MKR token. So the the speculative governance token I was talking about earlier. And when you pay it, the system actually burns the token uh, and resulting in, in more scarcity of the MKR token. And that's sort of what drives the, the value of MKR. And then in the end, you can retrieve your your Ethereum collateral out of the system again. So this is really like you pay, you know, when you after you finish paying off your mortgage to the bank, the house is just yours, right? Freehold and the bank can't come and take it. And what is the stability fee and why does that have to be paid through MKR? Yeah, I mean, so the stability fee is really equivalent to the, like, to the risk premium of the loan, right? So the stability fee sort of exists to protect the system against the risk that um, the collateral will crash to nothing and, and the, the system will have to recapitalize because there's, you know, because now there's not enough collateral to back die. So the stability fee depends on how risky the collateral asset you're using is. And of course, in single collateral DAI, so the current version that's running live on Ethereum right now, there's only one type of collateral. And so so there's just one stability fee set for that, for set for Ethereum. Which um, is what amount? Yeah, so right now it is 0.5%. And what's interesting is it's actually been changing quite a lot. And it's been changing based on our decentralized governance process. So it is actually the MKR holders that come together and then vote directly on the blockchain with their MKR to change the stability fee. And, uh, and yeah, then, and then again, the way it's like when you paid, you actually paid with the MKR as well. So if you're, if you're like a, a regular user, when you want to, to close your CDP, so when you want to pay back your loan and just retrieve your collateral, uh, you have to go and buy a tiny amount of MKR and then uh, give that to the system and the system will then burn that MKR. And to date, about 500 MKR has been burned this way, which is equivalent to something like we think that's uh, that's a, yeah yeah there's less less than one percent of the total supply, right? So it's not really it's actually it's about 0.1 percent of the total supply that has been burned so far in total, and um, but that kind of represents what gives the system value and kind of keep it keeps it going because it means that as the system runs and as people use it the value of MKR grows, right? Because MKR becomes more and more scarce. And this in turn creates the incentive that's necessary for MKR holders to actively engage with the system and and govern it and make sure it remains stable. And in a way, I guess paying that through MKR, it's sort of like, it kind of helps ensure the safety of it in a way. Do you know what I mean? And that it creates an incentive to... Or it sort of pays, I guess, the people who are governing it for yeah, governing exactly. well. Yeah. 
So it aligns the incentives of, of the users of a system and those who, like, the, I guess you can say the workers, right? Those who, who operate the system. Yeah, um, and actually, actually pay so, isn't the right verb. It's more like they, the, value, the value of their MKR rises as long as they govern it well. Yeah, and people are paying exactly. back. Yeah, okay. And, um, and in the multi-collateral version of the system, so in the next release, that really is, like that we really consider to be like the, the full version, right? And the current version we consider to be a beta. Um, th this will be abstracted away. So when you pay down your debt, the stability fees actually paid and die. And you don't even know, like you don't even have to worry about what's the principal debt, what's the stability fee. Like you just have an amount of debt that you have to pay to get access to your collateral. And the system then automatically sort of takes out the portion of the of the what you're paying back that is equivalent to the stability fee and takes that die and automatically buys MKR with it and then burns it. So it becomes more convenient for the end user, but the system still has that dynamic of um, buying and you know burning MKR and thus making sure that as users use the system, those who regulate and protect the system are continuously rewarded to align the incentives. All right, so. Now let's move to the next scenario, which is a little bit more complex uh, than the single collateral die that's just redeemed and, and doesn't get liquidated. Um, so in this, uh, this is, you know, a, a version in which someone does create single collateral die, but then the value of their collateralized deposition does fall below that minimum threshold. At that point, what, what happens? Yeah, so right now, um, the liquidation ratio, so that minimum threshold of collateral value is set at 150%. Um, and on average, actually, most people keep it at 300%. So most people, they have, for every $1 of debt, they actually have $3 of Ethereum collateral. Uh, but that doesn't, you know, that doesn't protect some people from, from being a little bit, taking a little bit too much of risk and getting really close to that point. And um, yeah, so if you hit that 150% level, so that basically means, let's say, if you have a, let's say if you have $100 in debt, if the value of your Ethereum collateral hits $150 in value, the system will detect this through its price feed oracles and will then trigger a liquidation. And that really just means that it takes all your collateral and it sells it off on the market to try to, to recapitalize and take get in enough die. And then when it gets enough die, it pays down your debt, takes also a penalty that's kind of there to incentivize people to not get, get into this, like not rely on this mechanism, but rather make sure that they maintain their own uh, CDP like uh, on their own. Uh, and then whatever's left over, if anything is left over, is then given back to the, to the user. And so for this penalty, which is the liquidation penalty, how, what percentage is that? It, that is actually at 13% right now, which I think is quite high. But I think an interesting dynamic that we have seen is that as over the past year, right, as the Ethereum price has completely crashed, like completely cratered, right? But but during this time, DAI has been backed only by Ethereum. And what's interesting is that as as CDP holders keep getting closer to their to the liquidation point, uh, they're very good at like topping up with Ethereum collateral because they don't want to get hit by that 13% penalty. So it's a very, it's like a very strict penalty that, that is in place right now, but also it has a very healthy sort of uh, effect on the behavior of the users. And why do you have the liquidation penalty? I mean, 
I, I understand you said earlier it's to incentivize people to not get liquidated, but why is that important for the maker down system if essentially you the system um, should always at least remain whole? Yeah, I mean this is so like it, this actually gets into some of the so the, the the deeper governance and and risk theory that we spend a lot of time talking about in the community, and basically the thing is that. Maker is designed to not fail under normal circumstances, right? Like it's like it, it's fine if Ethereum falls, let's say ninety percent over a year. That's not really a, like that is actually an expected scenario, right? And and yeah. similarly, if there just are like fluctuations in the market and there's like a, a big crash or something, that's that's still also enough for these parameters to deal with. But kind of the the only real risk to to like a, a financial infrastructure like Maker is. You know, it's it's like really like a systemic type of sleepwalking where everyone is kind of ignoring what's going on and people are just like counting on whatever, like like oh yeah, it'll be it'll be fine, kind of. And you know, so actually, it's almost like a you know, it's almost more than just a, a financial phenomenon. It's like a, a cultural phenomenon, right? Which I think is something like if you look at something like the the two thousand eight financial crisis, that's like an example of. When it really, when when complacency really sets in, that's when you can get these kind of like crazy crashes that actually can catch even the most, you know, uh, diligent uh, risk model off guard. So we, so the goal is basically that we really want to ensure that, um, you know, the users understand that you know that they're playing with leverage, which is some like and you know, credit is actually something, and credit risk is something to take seriously. So if you don't know. Like if you're not actively managing your own low, like your own position, you do not actively know what's going on in the system. You should use a service that you know holds your hand, kind of that helps you actually do this. And so right now, a few of those services exist, but basically in the future we expect it to be a much you know bigger and, and healthier ecosystem of um, of many types of of you know like front end services that that for instance will help liquidate um, users position in advance so they don't hit the limit like so they don't hit sort of the system level and uh, just in general ensure that the system as a whole runs more smoothly because the people who use it actually you know are are watching the market right now actually watching what's going on rather than just you know levering up and then you know hoping everything will be fine yeah i love what you said about the cultural shift because I feel like this is yet another example of how people have to learn with crypto that it really is like digital or it can function like digital cash and that this money just performs really differently or or acts really differently from the kinds of money that we're used to. And it's like yet another example of the mind shift that somebody has to undergo if they're going to take control of their private keys. And there's actually more I want to ask you about that later, but Another thing that I wanted to ask you was, so why, why is it 13%? Because you even yourself admitted that was high. Yeah, I mean, it's actually because, I mean, so the reason why I think 13% was high and kind of, I mean, because it, in, like in hindsight, we actually think that we've seen, I mean, that in a, in a way we can justify that it maybe it makes sense in a system like this to have a sort of a very, have a very punishing uh, penalty like that, just because we saw that good behavior out of it, right? But so it's actually because, um, just like for technical reasons in single collateral DAI, uh, it's it's implemented in a way where its liquidation function is just not very, it doesn't 
is not very good, basically. Um, so it's very inefficient. Oh. And and um, for that reason, that's like, so just to, I mean, it's not, I mean, I guess it's not, it's not like it's, you know, it's just like, it, it could be a lot better. Um, and it will be a lot better in multi-collateral die. And basically because that's the case, we just decided to really, really err on, you know, significantly on the side of caution and just put something we thought was like, yeah, this is really, really high. We're going to, going to put it at 13%. And then there's no way that we will actually run into issues, uh, you know, derived from the fact that the liquidation function is implemented in a, in a more simple way. And then why is the minimum threshold for collateral? Why is that 150%? Um, that's actually just an arbitrary number. Like that is, um, no, I mean, that's, it's, I guess it's the, like what we've been looking, what we looked at when we came up with that completely arbitrary number is things like other stable coins, like, um, you know, BitShares has this BitUSD stable coin that DAI really is uh, inspired by and is sort of an evolution of that whole design. Um, and we saw then, and that had a, that actually had a similar, um, like had risk parameters that were similar to that, although their risk parameters work slightly differently. And then another example is when you look at um, the various margin trading platforms, um, like that that allow people to margin trade Ethereum, for instance. What we saw is those that we consider to be kind of like the legit ones, I guess you can say, like the the not ones that are like full on casinos, but more like actually are, are, are providing leverage to sophisticated professional traders that know what they're doing, and they they seem to to um, I mean, typically they would allow up to 5x leverage in, in, in many cases, and also 3x is pretty common. So we basically said 3x was going to be our absolute sort of like uh, upper bound for how much leverage uh, users would be able to take. So we just ensure the system stays sort of on the, on the safe side. But yeah, but there's actually more nuance to this because in reality, you can't really like in reality, the this liquidation ratio is actually not a fixed like a fixed point, but rather it's a function of what the stability fee is. So this, you know, this, the interest rate you have to pay due to the inherent risk of your, of your collateral and of your loan. So um, in multi-collateral die, it'll actually be a lot, like it'll be kind of like choose your own uh, liquidation ratio, depending on how much you want to pay in stability fee. And then those two things are related on a curve. Oh, wow. This, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, comparisons one could make to something like lending club like a peer-to-peer loan but that i definitely think of as another parallel that i'm seeing i actually think this sort of brings up the role of keepers so um can you describe who they are in the community yeah so keepers are i guess you can say they're kind of they're they are rational agents who are completely independent from the system and who are can be like anonymous and basically can be anyone and any person can can run a keeper by just going to a keeper repository and github github and get the open source code and what they basically do is they are yeah they're like external independent agents that exploit various profit opportunities in the system now the 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 most obvious and sort of like the reason why the keeper concept was invented was to um to arbitrage the liquidations in the system right so when a keeper sees, like, so keepers are constantly looking for CDPs that um, that reach the liquidation point. And if it finds one that has reached the liquidation point, then the keeper is actually the one that sort of 
uh, triggers the uh, the function in the system that actually runs the liquidation, and the keeper then also will will buy the the collateral out of the the system during the liquidation, for instance, and then immediately go and sell it on some market elsewhere. So keepers are kind of in a way you can it's a little bit like the glue that holds the system together, um, and they're also kind of like the rational capital that um, interact with the system to, for instance, stabilize die in the short term based on the incentives that are built in for the long term. And ultimately, uh, the more keepers there are, the be- like the more regular users the system can handle. Uh, and also, like depending on how efficient and or inefficient the system is, that determines how much you can make as a keeper. Yeah, the role of keeper reminds me a little bit of miners in Bitcoin or Ethereum or really any other role or this new trend that I discussed on the podcast with Jake Brookman and Tushar Jean of Generalized Mining, where now you're seeing that these software networks basically can employ people or machines. Um, And it's something I talked about in my TEDx talk a little bit. Um, But as long as the incentives are designed correctly, then the people who take on these roles can make money doing them. So one thing that you mentioned, though, is that they kind of help keep the price, uh, you know, in the right, uh, you know, near the peg or at the peg. How does that part work? Yeah, so, and I, I really like what you're saying about the similar to mining, because when we first came up with the, the, the name Keeper, we actually was like thinking, like, how, do you, how do you explain what it is? Maybe something like Mining 2.0. Um, mm-hmm. and then, and then what, one of the, so, so the, the other key thing to a keeper, other than that keepers exploit profit opportunities is also if you're a keeper and you're already doing one thing where you're sort of scanning the blockchain and exploiting a profit opportunity, you may as well also do everything else that sort of is, you know, now you've already got this secure setup that's, that's performing some sort of profitable function. You may as well also f- look for other similar things you can do, Right. And so the other the other really obvious thing to do, like as a keeper that's already scanning maker for liquidation opportunities, is to, for instance, arbitrage the price of DAI across decentralized exchanges, right? So if you can find something, like you can find an order on two different exchanges that actually cross, but that just haven't matched because they're in two different order books, then you can buy one and sell the other, for instance, right? But the really advanced and also the most profitable activity that a keeper can do is market making. Right, so really, just providing liquidity to the market, and this is where they—I mean—and this—and and this is this is what can really, in a way, be described as exploiting the most fundamental mechanism of the maker system, which is the uh, the governance mechanism that keeps Dai stable around one US dollar. And so, basically, what a keeper will do is a keeper will just bet that if the price of Dai is you know deviates from one dollar. That's a profit opportunity because you can either then buy die and expect it to go back to $1 and sell it again for some profit, or you can sell it above $1 and expect it to go down to $1 and then buy it to also similarly make a profit. Yeah, I find this whole system pretty incredible. The more I learned about it, the more I was really amazed. And I honestly was proud because like you, I taught English in Asia early in my career. And so... I was pretty impressed that um, you had led the charge to come up with this system. Um, all right, another role that I want to discuss is oracles. Who? What? What do oracles do? Who are they? So the, the the term oracle is it's a pretty old term. I think probably 
like likes those kind of things. I, I feel like it's a, something that was made up by Vitalik. I think it's very likely. I mean, I feel I remember him making a blog post at some point in the early days. But anyways, the oracles is like, yeah, it's, it's a it's a generalized term for external actors that provide trusted data onto the blockchain. So for Maker, it's this like oracles play this very crucial role of telling the system what the price of Ethereum is, for instance, right? So the system knows uh, when a CDP is supposed to be liquidated, right? Because you can't actually find that, like, the blockchain doesn't see the the outside world, right? Um, so, um, you know, you, you actually need to have some sort of link and there needs to be some element of trust when you get in some data because you can't just have anyone submitting any data they want, right? Then that'll immediately, that just won't work. You actually need to, like, define in advance who do you trust and like what kind of sources do you trust for your data and the oracle problem as many like to call it right is really one of the most fundamental issues in in like smart contracts and decentralization and uh, the good news is nowadays there are some really cool solutions and um, so the solution we are currently using with maker is just a relatively simple like diversification scheme essentially so basically um, rather than using one source for the price feed into into Maker, uh, the MKR holders they actually choose a whole set of of oracles. So they will choose like so. Right now, it's fourteen different Ethereum addresses. So like fourteen different like people basically around the world that have been chosen through an MKR vote when the system was launched, and they all individually provide data into like they all individually continuously update what they sort of like observed to be the current price of ethereum on the market and then there is a like a fully autonomous smart contract that takes in all of these data so it basically takes 14 different data points in real time and then takes the median of those different data points and and then pushes that median into maker itself so that and and taking the median of the data points is pretty important because that actually gives us some resilience because it means that if if just like let's say some of the oracles get compromised and start sending crazy numbers, it's going to be completely ignored by the system. Only if fifty one percent of the oracles are compromised and start sending bad data, do we actually have a problem where that's going to get pushed into the core of the system. So there there also have to be some secondary mechanisms to kind of protect against yeah like uh, like compromised oracles and that is that's fundamentally like the fact that oracles always can in theory be compromised is sort of the the fundamental uh to the fundamental thing about the oracle problem we're going to keep discussing oracles in a moment but first a quick word from our fabulous sponsors issuing a digital security on the blockchain can be a significant undertaking particularly to ensure compliance requirements are met tokensoft's trusted platform provides security in a world of uncertainty by working with top legal and financial experts so that your digital assets are secure TokenSoft leads the market in providing technological tools to support tax, banking, and securities regulations for issuers of digital assets. We are honored to have supported leading companies in 2018. To learn more about issuing digital securities successfully, visit tokensoft.io or follow them on Twitter at TokenSoft Inc. Within months, cryptocurrency anti-money laundering regulations go global. Are you ready? Avoid stiff penalties or blacklisting by deploying effective anti-money laundering tools for exchanges and crypto businesses, the same tools used by regulators. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. 
Face it, regulations can stall or kill a fast-moving crypto business. New Financial Action Task Force and European Union Cryptocurrency AML laws are coming soon. You could be hit with stiff fines or blacklisted, no matter where your servers are in the world. Prepare now. Deploy the same powerful CypherTrace tools used by regulators. Protect your assets, streamline your compliance programs, and keep your exchange or crypto business out of the regulator's crosshairs. Learn how effective anti-money laundering tools help keep your crypto business safe and trusted. Learn more at cyphertrace.com slash unchained. Cyphertrace is securing the crypto economy. Getting your blockchain app off the whiteboard and into production can be a big undertaking. From connecting user interfaces to integrating disparate systems and data, blockchain app development can be time-intensive and costly. Well, the folks at Azure have you covered. With a few simple clicks, the Azure Blockchain Workbench can create a blockchain network for you, pre-integrated with the cloud services needed to build your app. And with their new development kit, users can extend their app to ingest messages from bots, edge devices, databases, and more. It's free to download and gives you the tools you need to get your first app running in less than 30 minutes. To learn more about the dev kit and how to get started, visit aka.ms slash unchained or follow them on Twitter at MSFT blockchain. Back to my conversation with Rune Christensen of MakerDAO. So I totally understand everything you're saying about how the Oracle problem is a fundamental problem and I understood this part about the 51% attack, but if that's all the case, then why are there so few oracles? All you have to do is get eight people to collude and they can totally corrupt the system. That seems like a really a kind of vulnerable position to be in. Yeah. I mean, so, so right now with, um, with single battle die and, and the, the, the way the system is set up currently, we are really relying a lot on the fact that, like we, the the people who are running these oracles currently are actually some very long-standing community members. Some of them are even uh, oracles from other projects in the past, including uh, BitShares, which is like one of the first, or possibly the first project that started using oracles in this way. And uh, then they're also like their their identity is actually not known. They're like a, like the foundation runs this whole oracle sort of anonymization scheme where it's it's only very few people who actually know who the oracles are and so ultimately it's it's definitely i mean what it is it's really a a system that's robust enough for the beta for single collateral die because it's not really it's you know at its in its current state it's not really something that can be compromised by like a normal actor you know maybe some state level actor would be able to 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 penetrate the way it currently works um, but we definitely consider it safe enough for, you know, for like a, the relatively limited scale of single collateral die. And then our main focus is how to make it better, right? And actually the, the absolute key thing that must be solved is, in, in fact, like, I mean, the Oracle problem fundamentally just needs to be solved, right? Like, in fact, you can't actually ever accept that regardless of what the chance is that the Oracles get compromised. Like, it doesn't matter what that chance is. As long as it's not zero, that's not acceptable, right? You're not going to actually be able to build a full financial infrastructure on top of it. So we actually have a solution that um, that we believe actually. I mean, of course you can't like you can never like 
solve something like, or you can never sort of guarantee anything with complete certainty, right? But we can, we're sort of approaching, you know, like 99.999% confidence with this approach. And basically the idea is that, so alongside this median, like this, this function that sort of takes in all the different inputs and then uh, takes the median of those inputs. So to ensure that even if some of them are compromised, it doesn't matter because as long as the majority of are, are clean, then it won't get uh, get contaminated. Um, but then the next step is that instead of pushing this sort of, um, you know, the fully processed data directly into the system, there's actually a delay in post on that data. So, and, and this is through something we call the Oracle security module. So basically the Oracle's, like sort of the processed data from the Oracle is put into the Oracle security module and it then sits there for an hour and just waits. And it's basically available for everyone to see. So everyone can see, okay, in one hour, this will be the new Oracle input. But, you know, we can see it now and we don't like, like, it's not like we can actually react. We have a, a full hour to react. And it is then, and then if the value is something crazy, like, you know, 99999 or whatever, or zero or something, right? So, so basically if, if the Oracles are compromised and they're trying to attack the system by sending in malicious data, then the, uh, this sort of the second layer and very, strong uh, powerful defensive mechanism can then uh like uh, activate and this is where this is and this is probably actually the most important feature of the whole system um it's called the emergency shutdown so basically it is a way to for the system to actually shut down in the event of some sort of negative um you know external or whatever i mean it could even be if the system got hacked or it could be if the market went completely crazy or the, like there was some sort of crazy crash or if there's some sort of crypto economic attack like on the oracle infrastructure and what an emergency shutdown does is it sort of freezes the system at its last known safe state so if there's currently some bad data on its way through the the oracle security module then the emergency shutdown will in, will sort of rely on like on the last on the Oracle data point that was before that, right? That was still a safe data point. And then it will settle every single user of the system at the net asset value they're entitled to. So what that means is as a die holder, like the worst thing that can happen to you as a die holder is that the system stops, like the service sort of stops running, right? The system stops working, but you can now just, like what that means to your die is your die is now just becomes a claim on $1 worth of collateral, right? So you no longer have a stable coin that's, that keeps this remains stable on $1, but your current stable coins, you can go and you can um, exchange them directly in a system for, for like the equivalent value in ETH of $1 at the time that this emergency shutdown was done. And then there is this very highly redundant infrastructure of what's called emergency oracles. So basically a different type of oracle that, um, that just watches out for for um yeah for like oracle attacks or and actually there's also another kind of attack is relevant for the, which is the mkr holders get, getting naughty and trying to use their powers maliciously and in both cases the emergency oracles are able to detect this and then everything like and then it's like a, a very redundant and also very um i guess you can say trigger happy infrastructure right so like even a single emergency oracle is able to on its own unilaterally trigger an emergency shutdown and there is actually layers beyond that. So even if all the emergency oracles fail, MKR holders themselves are actually with, with like with a relatively small minority um, able to also directly trigger an emergency shutdown. 
And ultimately, all of this together is how we get to that. Like, so, so you know, we can't guarantee with total, like, total certainty that an attack will be will be, um, you know, mitigated with an emergency shutdown. But we can t- guarantee it with like, you know, ninety nine point nine 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 nine, like, kind of like as close as you possibly can get to total certainty. And this, we believe, is then a strong enough deterrent that it actually makes it just totally economically inviable for someone to try to attack a system in any way, right? Because Launching an attack would be very expensive, and the probability of success is just, it's, you know, it's, it's, it, it doesn't register, basically. Wow, this is really intense. Just so I can be clear that I understood, so a single emergency oracle can trigger a shutdown, and also MKR holders can single-handedly trigger shutdowns? Yeah, and it's, it's a very, it's kind of like a, like, it's kind of like that logic of, you know, it's better to better to imagine like it's better to see an imaginary tiger than to you know fail to see a real tiger you know so so basically it's you know so it's very easy to to trigger an emergency shutdown and even even a small like a minority of mkr holders so actually a very small percentage of mkr holders able to do it now the of course the problem is like there's the flip side to this right and this is emergency shutdown is a very terrible like well, I mean, it's 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 definitely like it's it's not really a desirable thing, right? I mean, ideally, it never happens, and that's actually also why it's called. It used to have a different name, but we we changed the name to emergency shutdown to really like signify that this is not actually a, like a, a feature you should expect to ever happen. But it's more like, you know, it's almost like a a game theoretic device that sits there to prevent stuff from happening, but hopefully never has to be used. However, if it did have to be used. Um, there are, you know, there's a, there's a lot of infrastructure in place to ensure that you can actually just do a smooth sort of redeployment and, and kind of like immediately restart the system and get everything back to normal. So in the end, what, uh, kind of like a, what we call a troll shutdown, right? So someone like abusing the power of, of being able to trigger an emergency shutdown in the event of attack and instead just using it to, you know, just like cause disruption. The, what that would really mean for an end user is that in their like in their wallet or something like that they would have like there would be they would have to click a button and they wouldn't even have they wouldn't even need to know why that was like what is going on behind the scenes but then that would be sort of um that would be the only thing that would really be felt by the end users um and and the system and the governance is then able to to sort of handle the entire migration on the back end so yeah so in in, in, in like in, in it's kind of it it really is kind of like a you know a nuclear deterrent in a way, right? It's kind of like mutually assured destruction, and ideally, it never actually um, is used in real life, except in one circumstance, which is upgrades. So you also use it when you want to upgrade the system, right? Then you it exists to you can you can shut down the infrastructure and you can transition to a new one. And actually, when we upgrade from single collateral die to multi collateral die, it it is by by eventually triggering an emergency shutdown on single collateral die. And I'm sorry, in the case of a troll shutdown, emergency, emergency shutdown, how is that person punished? Yeah, so <laughs> so that's my favorite part. So there's actually a whole bunch of, like, so we also have a whole bunch of, of game theory around that, right? Um, but ba- I mean, but there's basically two types of actors that can trigger an emergency shutdown, right? There is, um, so there are the centralized emergency oracles that are, uh, I mean, in the long run, they are basically going to be institutions of some sort that uh, are chosen by MKR holders and given the power 
to to trigger an emergency shutdown. Uh, in the short run, they will be multiple sort of multiple independent divisions within the foundation. So the foundation will run like a very sophisticated security infrastructure that then also has the power to do the emergency shutdown. And basically, the way to like the way to prevent trolling from you know centralized legal entities is pretty simple. It's just using the legal system, right? So they will actually be like you know there will be legal agreements in place that ensure that someone who abuses that power can actually be you know like can be pursued legally. And then the other so so that's that like that should serve as a deterrent, but of course it's not guaranteed to do so. And ultimately, and, and, but but wait, when you say pursued legally, like like what law would be broken and there's different jurisdictions. So how do you, that just sounds. Yeah. I mean, the, like, let's say like, I mean, this is actually different depending on which jurisdiction the emergency Oracle op- operates in. Right. So, um, but, but typically it would like, I mean, the, basically it will be an agreement between like the emergency Oracle and then something like, like well-known entities and institutions in that jurisdiction that are, sort of trust, like, you know, that the community ultimately trusts that if we look at this entire network here and they all have agreements with this emergency Oracle, that if they, you know, that if they abuse their, their emergency Oracle powers, they can be, you know, there's some sort of liability there. Um, then like that's at some point there's, there is going to be enough guarantees in place that the community actually feels comfortable, you know, whitelisting that particular emergency Oracle with the power to trigger an emergency shutdown. And then if, like, of course, it's still not, it's not guaranteed. It really is for sure uh, not going to be abused. But then again, like, the, the key is that, again, if it is actually abused, it's still, like, you know, it's not the end of the world. It is just, uh, like, a UX annoyance, basically. And the next time that, like, once you then have a, a troll emergency shutdown from such a scenario and you do the redeployment after, then, of course, you just make sure to not make the same mistake, right, and exclude that emergency oracle and, in general, can add more, like, strict checks and balances on who who gets to have that power. Yeah, I mean, one other thing that I was thinking is it's more than just a UX annoyance because the people who have collateralized at 3x will recoup much less money than the people who've collateralized at 1.5. So in that regard, the people who are kind of being safer with their collateralized at positions, they get punished more in that scenario, right? No, I mean, if if you do, uh, if you go from from one live system and then do an emergency shutdown and then a redeployment process and transition over, you will be at the exact same. All, like you click a button and your CDP will be exactly what, like it was before. There are actually oh, some efficiency I thought, losses. I, I thought with the emergency shutdown, everybody's position basically. Well, I don't know if it gets liquidated, but people only receive one dollar. They they only get uh, a value that's equivalent to the amount of die that they had. Isn't that correct? Yeah. Well. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, no. It's a net asset value, right? So if you're a die holder, you get value equivalent to the to the die you have. If you're a CDP holder, you get value equivalent to sort of the ex, you know, the free collateral that you have. So let's say you have a CDP um, with two hundred dollars of collateral and a hundred dollars of debt, right? Then you would get a hundred dollars of collateral and you would then immediately be able to go to the new system and, um, and use that hundred dollars of collateral to then again, collateralize a two, you know, a 200% collateralization CDP where you also, you take out a hundred debt 
and uh, and use that to purchase an additional hundred dollars worth of Ethereum. And, oh, okay. but rather than having to do this manually, there will, you know, there's a process in place, uh, that we will showcase the first time when we do the, um, the single collateral to multi-collateral upgrade where you, you actually just click one button once. And then all of this stuff happens sort of automatically on the back end, And you just see now your, your CDP has been migrated over from one system to another. Okay. And I wanted to ask more about the oracles. How often do they give their prices? Because, as we know, the crypto prices can be very volatile. So if it's, you know, within long enough time periods, then the price can really have varied a lot, even in the interim between when they have to give their price updates. Yeah. So right now they actually give it very often. Right now it's something like, well, actually right now they don't, uh, they, they don't really look at, you know, they don't have a fixed frequency. They just have a like they update anytime they see a change of, I think it's something like 1%, but actually they're sort of deliberately said to be scrambled. So it's, but in the end, like in the end it, it does give a, a pretty regular uh, cadence of updates currently. Um, which is what? But actually we, we, I mean, which is something like every, well, it's hard to say actually, because it depends on how much the price is swinging. Um, so it, like, it, but I guess it's, I mean, at least every minute or something, you know, like it, it, it stays very up to date in that sense. But actually, so it's what's really, interesting it's like people is, running algorithms essentially that are the oracles. Yeah, well, yeah, it's it's um, so what it is, it's processes on on servers around the world that basically um, hook up to various APIs of exchanges and then like monitor them and then run some sort of algorithm on the different prices that they see from different exchanges and then ultimately come up with some, like some, some, you know, some aggregate number that they then, or, you know, some, some median number or something that they then push into maker. And they actually all use different algorithms for, you know, for the sake of diversification. So they all have like a slightly different approach on how they, you know, how they obtain the the current market price of Ethereum. Um, But actually one thing. Oh, go ahead. Yes. Yeah, so one one thing that's interesting, right? We were talking about is how this thing about the pri- like how there needs to be very frequent uh, Oracle updates, right? Because that was actually also our initial thought, right? And that's why we engineered the Oracles the way they they currently run. But what we've since come to realize is that it, it, the opposite is actually true, and that the system doesn't actually need very regular Oracle updates. Um, and that's why we have that, you know, we have that whole security mechanism where. So basically, in multi-collateral DAI, there will only be updates every hour. Yeah, and 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 fundament, like the short version of the reason, like the reason why that is okay to do, is because you can compensate for that uh, via the risk parameters, basically. So you can actually take it into your overall risk assessment that um, that the oracle isn't in real time, but rather is, um, you know, has this one-hour delay. But then the the second part is that. In multi-collateral DAI, the way liquidations are done are through auctions, and these auctions are like based on like based on 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 you know on like doing the preliminary calculations on it. Basically, it turns out that these these auctions typically should have a duration that's in, like something like six hours or more, basically, uh, to really probably you know be able to access all the the arbitrage you know arbitrageurs and and liquidity across the whole marketplace and ecosystem. So. Once you have that as a context, right? If if the auctions take six hours anyway, then uh, you know, like the like an oracle duration of one hour doesn't actually really change much because 
that just means you could, okay, if you were going to make the, the auction duration six hours and the oracle frequency is one hour, you can just cut down the, the auction duration to five hours instead. And you still get sort of an overall end-to-end cycle of six hours. Okay, I'm having a little bit of trouble following this. So I think, though, this may relate to a question that I had for the oracles uh, Die went live after the Ether flash crash on GDAX in the summer of 2017. But at that time, let's say that Die had been live, then what would have happened is that the oracles all would have thrown out the the 10 cent prices and whatever on GDAX because it takes the median. Is that how that would have worked? Yeah. So, I mean, so the oracles actually, like, so the way the median is implemented on the blockchain, on the smart contract side. And it's a very simple process, right? It just takes the median of the of its inputs. But actually the Oracle, you know, clients themselves, so like the actual servers that are sitting there and, and sort of pulling data from different uh, exchanges, they actually have a lot more sort of sophisticated signal processing logic built into them. So they actually are just able to like detect, this is a flash crash, just totally ignore that. Um, so uh, of course the problem is, the question is when when is something a flash crash and when is it a real crash that you know and basically if if there was you know a major crash across all exchanges at once and it actually was sustained so it wasn't just like in, you know it, it goes to zero and then it goes back up after like a few seconds or a few minutes but if it actually if there's like a huge crash and it's sustained for like you know like many minutes or maybe even an hour or something then at that point this you know there's no way to basically detect that this is just a flash crash and then the system would really just register those numbers. So the risk of that, of something like that happening, basically has to be accounted for in the risk models themselves, right? Because that's like, it, something like that can always happen, right? I mean, there are many instances of like true, like black swan events in the real world where there are assets that just have huge crashes. And this really also speaks to the, the reason why you got to have multiple collateral types, right? You, you can't keep all your eggs in one basket. Right. But so then let's say that there was something like maybe there was some vulnerability found in the Ethereum blockchain and suddenly the question of whether Ethereum itself was viable. Let's say that that happened, like something really even bigger than, you know, when Vitalik was rumored to have died and, you know, whatever, just something where it's like, oh my God, Ethereum may not work anymore. So in that case, I guess this is just another way of me asking about what you were saying about how you actually don't need frequent updates. Let's say that that was, it was thought that that was the case. And then maybe like an hour or two later, um, people realized that for whatever reason, this didn't mean, didn't mean the end of Ethereum and suddenly people were buying back Ether. Then, so how would why is it that the oracles don't need to be updated as frequently? I still don't understand that point. Well, I mean, so I actually don't. Like, I mean, I think a better a better example to look at is just like an asset just crashing extremely fast, right? And the system not basically um, registering this fast enough to start triggering liquidations itself. So mm-hmm. once it starts triggering those liquidations, the price is already zero, and and maybe if. Like I mean, and, th- and now I'm I'm sort of making the argument um, for why why you think that you would have really fast oracles, right? I mean, if you have ultra fast oracles, you could imagine a scenario where, um, you know, the liquidations actually happened 
during that incredibly fast crash and the system would actually have been able to get some of the money back, right? Because it, it would have been lucky enough to still sell to like a greater fool kind of who was willing to, to buy all the way down to zero. But I mean, like, and that is, that is sort of, I mean, there is, there is a re like, there is sort of an argument to be made that this is a, this is good behavior, but there's actually also like, there's also reasons why you don't want that. Right. Because, and that is actually kind of the scenario you talked about. Right. I mean, where, what if it goes to zero and it, is at zero for you know twenty minutes and then it goes back to the price it was before, right? Or, or some scenario like that, right? Some in some cases it, you don't want to just like be super neurotic and and immediately react to the data. But but the most important thing is that fundamentally, uh, not like this doesn't like wh whichever way you do it don't really matter in the in the grand scheme of things because may, like because Mega ultimately has to be able to not just deal with like really really fast crashes but with literally instant crashes right like with a crash that's literally like from one like the government seizes this entire like tokenized uh you know like it's all the gold or something that is tokenized in some vault right so the gold token is now from the very second that that happens the that token is now totally worthless right so no it doesn't matter how fast the oracles are the price is is completely has gone to zero now and and that kind of scenario is something the system also needs to be able to handle, right? And the way you deal with that is really just through the like through the fundamental risk management of the system, right? So the system must have very diversified collateral and must have, you know, like different kinds of, of stability in it and sort of like uncorrelated assets that provide many different types of value and ultimately provide many different types of uh, income streams to MKR holders, right? So a lot of stability fees that constantly go to MKR to buy MKR and burn it. So that if one of these many different types of collateral suddenly disappears and just goes poof and it's gone, the system as a whole is able to absorb that loss. So kind of like, uh, you know, sell, like basically like insurance, right? Like that every, everyone, everything is paying and then suddenly there's a disaster in one point and basically the payments from every other point sort of makes up for the fact that, that there is a huge disaster, there's a huge uh, shortfall here. But ultimately, as a whole, the system is able to absorb that and, and keep going. Um, and that also, I mean, that's also an interesting mechanism, right? Because the way that actually happens in practice is that the MKR token is inflated. So just like the MKR token is, uh, is burned and, and uh, deflates in good times, it actually inflates and, and goes out on the market in the event of this kind of, of uh, massive crash that undercollateralizes the parts of the system. And ultimately, that's sort of the, the fundamental dynamic of, of the governance, right? It's all about trying to, to get in fees in good times and by all means and at all costs prevent these kind of like crazy crashes that result in inflation. Yeah, I'm having a lot of flashbacks to the financial crisis. And I'm realizing, in a way, what you're saying reminds me of how Everybody says that when there's a market crash, the smartest thing to do is to not sell. Of course, everybody does sell, which is why there's a market crash. But it's only, you know, when you sell that you lock in your losses. So in the scenarios that you're describing where there's a crash, but then there's a recovery, it is better to uh, for the system to have not sold. However, as we were talking about before, you don't want the MKR holders to become complacent. And so that's why if they do manage the system in a way where it is exposed to these risks and therefore is harmed by the risk that they take, then their MKR holdings get diluted. So, okay, Rune, so we're 
now starting to sort of talk about multi-collateral die, and yet we're approaching the end of the hour. And it's kind of crazy that we have not even discussed that or any of the many other things going on in MakerDAO. And I had a feeling this was going to happen actually when I went into the episode because I mean, it's the case with pretty much every episode where I generally have more questions than I have time to ask. But <laughs> this episode definitely took the cake. And since we had a sound check that lasted longer than a typical episode, <laughs> um, I think I'm just going to make this a two-parter and we will release the second hour with my gazillion other questions uh, next week. So listeners... I would like for you to tune back in next week. And in the meanwhile, Rune, it's been so great having you on the show. Where can people learn more about you and MakerDAO? Uh, the, I mean, the main place to go is to a website, right? Uh, MakerDAO.com. It has the white paper. It has our team page and a lot of really good resources. And um, then we have uh, our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash MakerDAO. Uh, as well as our community chat room if people really want to get involved which is yeah you can find that on the website but it's also on chat.makerdow.com great well thanks for coming on Unchained thanks so much for having me and to listeners thanks so much for joining us today to learn more about Rune and MakerDAO check out the show notes inside your podcast player new episodes of Unchained come out every Tuesday if you haven't already rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts if you liked this episode share it with your friends on Facebook Twitter or LinkedIn and if you're not yet subscribed to my other podcast, Unconfirmed, I highly recommend you check it out and subscribe now. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Raylan Gallipoli, Fraction Recording, Jenny Josephson, Corin Fife, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.